and welcome to Badass History, Episode 1. Um, basically, this is a podcast where I am going to talk about super cool stories from history that you may have never heard before, um, and it will be the background information to all of these. And for the most part, I'm not going to be you know, scripting all of this so that you can get the full detailed version story as I'm telling it so I don't have time to prepare any sappy jokes um, that sound incredibly pre-rehearsed because it's always awful when you want to hear when you have to pause for laughter effect. So basically, I'm just going to be telling stories as if y'all are sitting in my living room right here. So what we're going to talk about today is basically a crazy ass story of a woman named Olga. So she was, she's Olga of Kiev. So she's Russian. And it looks like she was born here in the early 900s. So right after Christianity was just becoming a thing, right? So St. Olga, she was a regent in Kiev in, in Russia for her son. So basically it was her and her husband. Her husband's name was Igor because of course it's Russia and everyone's named Igor. So Olga and Igor, power couple here, they were you know, rulers of this region, and everyone would have to pay money to them to pay their, you know, it's kind of like the mob in old New York in the 20s, you had to pay the hush money to the mob to make sure that you were going to be safe, and that somebody wasn't going to, you know, burn your storefront down at night, so basically that's what her and her husband doing, so they were collecting that money, the hush money from everybody in the area. Um, so basically this one group called the Drevlians, they decided they weren't paying this money anymore. They basically said, fuck that. I'm not paying this. This is stupid. We can take care of ourselves. So obviously Igor did not like that because they're not getting that influx of money that they should be getting as regents and rulers of the region. So the Drevlians basically lured Igor over to their area and what they did was he, Igor obviously fought them because they were not paying this money and he was not going to take them not paying this money. So what he does is he, you know, pre- beats them pretty badly and he's running away. Not running away, but he's riding on his horse away because he's, you know, job well done. But then he hears rumors that the Drevlians have, you know, are coming back for him. So him and a much smaller group of people turn around, and they go back. Well, the Drevlians basically pulled a Trojan horse on his ass, and turns out they were just trying to kill him. So they ambush him, kill Igor, which is her husband. So he was Prince Igor I of Kiev. So once he died, Olga and Igor had a son named Sviatoslav, because why not? And when Igor died, Sviatoslav, if that's a name, Sviatoslav was only like two years old. So he obviously couldn't rule on his own. So his mom had to rule for him. So, you know, I always picture in the early 900s, this kind of uh, no one marries for love. It's always like, oh, my, my dad said I'm 13 now and I have to get married to my 27-year-old neighbor. And that's kind of what I pictured all of it to be like. But I guess it's not because Olga really, 
I really loved Eve Gore. I mean, there's no other reason to explain why she would do the rest of this crazy shit she's about to do. So basically, she decided that um, somebody needs to pay for the death of her husband because now she doesn't have a husband, her son doesn't have a father, and she has to rule this whole goddamn country by herself with people who don't want her to rule it, right? So, um, oh, actually, what the the worst part about this whole thing is that when the Drevlians tricked Igor into coming back, they killed him by torturing him in which he was, quote, captured by them, tied to tree chunks, and torn into. So basically that's the early equivalent of drawing and quartering, right? We all seen that in, you know, what was it, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, where they draw and quarter people. So basically this is the early inspiration for that. But they say this, I mean, this could have been fake. And honestly, it might have been if they, like, you know, if they're rewriting this story back in the 1500s where this is super prevalent they're gonna be like oh yeah man that's probably it um anyway after igor's death he died in 945 olga ruled this kiev place on behalf of sviatoslav sviatoslav yeah yeah um so basically they don't really talk about what she did because she doesn't really have these great policies she doesn't really turn around the economic region she doesn't you know nothing really flourishes under her the only thing that happens is that she kills a bunch of people. So basically, what she did is she tried to kill every single Drevlian that she could. So what they decided, these other Drevlians, they were like, you know what? We killed your husband. We're not really sorry about that. But to make up for it, we think you should marry our prince in that so we can have control over your, your region. Um, you don't have to deal with it. And sorry your husband's dead, but um, this is ours now. So she, basically this is a quote. She says, Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses, no go on foot, carry us in our boat and you shall be carried in your boat so basically she's telling these people you're right I'll do it I'm just a woman it doesn't really matter so you guys go back to your boat and you guys can just be super arrogant and correct because I'm gonna marry your prince that's what's gonna happen you guys are gonna be in control of all this so you guys won so feel free to celebrate all you want but in the morning come on back and I don't want you to walk and I don't want you to you know, ride on horseback, my people are going to carry you in your boat so that you don't have to move. So they thought it was super fucking cool, right? So they repeated the words that she had told them to the local people. And they rose up, the people, and they carried the Drevlians in their boat. So these Drevlians thought this was the coolest fucking thing, right? Because they're being carried basically king, kingly style. People are carrying them in a boat above their heads and they're being carried over to the queen regent. So, turns out, they brought them to the court where they dropped the boat and the ambassadors into a trench that Olga had ordered dug the previous day. So they dropped them into this big-ass trench and burned them alive. Yeah. 
everyone just stood around and Olga decided to burn these people alive. So, you know, what she did was that she sent a message back to the Drevlians and was like, fuck you and your offer. Um... She said that they should send their distinguished men to her in Kiev so that she might go to their prince with due honor. So basically, the Drevlians didn't know that these first ambassadors were murdered. So she's like, eh, send me more. I need, a, I need a whole, whole group of your guys in order to meet your prince. And so you know what? They were like, fine. If she's going to come over and she's going to get married to us and we're going to take control of that land, we'll send whoever fucking she wants to send over, right? She's that important. So they send another party of men, the best men who governed the land of Dereva is what they said. So this is like, this is not just like, you know, Joe Schmo from the hood over here. This is like the equivalent of dukes and duchesses are being, well, just dukes because women didn't have place in that time. Dukes are being sent over to Olga to, you know, accompany her back to Dereva so that she can get married to this guy. So... She sent them all over. They arrived, and Olga graciously received them and said, you know what, I don't want to meet with you until you take a bath. It's just what I do. They probably smelled after riding on horseback all day, plus people didn't have deodorant back then, so I really don't blame her. So she told them to take a bath. When they entered the bathhouse, she set it on fire from the doors and locked them inside so that they all burned to death. So clearly Olga has a thing for burning. I mean... Probably a little bit of a pyro if we're going to talk about it. She just kept setting people on fire. I feel like there are more humane ways to kill somebody instead of setting them on fire. You know, I feel like a bullet, or they didn't have bullets back then, an arrow through the heart is probably a more humane and quick way to die, right? You can't just, you know, burn someone alive because that's First of all, agonizing, slow, painful, loud. And from what I've heard, it actually kind of smells. So this isn't a pleasant experience for anybody involved. Forget the Drevlians, you know. But she really likes burning people alive. So basically, after this happened, the Drevlians still have no idea that she's killed two parties of ambassadors at this time. So she sent another message to the Drevlians. And this time, she ordered them to prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband, that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. So I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have some kind of a historical background or know a little bit about what you're talking about. But mead is going to be like kind of a an ale or a beer. Um, I also probably shouldn't take it for granted because not everybody is a historical nerd like I am and watches the History Channel or watch the History Channel probably from the age of five, so that by the time you're in your 20s, you basically are full of random facts that aren't really good for anything except trivia night. Um, so basically, she orders all this meat, so all this beer, and she's going to have a funeral feast. So she invites these Drevlians over to the exact place that they killed her husband, and she got them all drunk. She, she weeped, wept, I don't know the past tense of the word weep. Um, Her and a small group of attendants got there. They had a feast. They cried. They had a great cry. And the Drevlians sat down to join them. And they drank heavily. So when they were all drunk, she ordered her followers to kill them. Because what else would she do at this point? 
She went about herself, egging on the retinue of the massacre of the Jerebleans. And this is the craziest part to me. She went into their into their domain, right, on pretenses that, you know, she's going to cry over her husband and then she's going to move on and she's going to marry the prince of the, the new place. What she does is that she killed 5,000 Dreblians in their capital. Just her people, just a small army went in and slaughtered them pig style. She returned to Kiev after that and further prepared an army to go and finish off the survivors. So forget this shit of, you know, subtle revenge. If you were just having a little bit of revenge, you would have killed the first group of ambassadors, called it a, you know, called it a day at that, and buried the body somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe you keep them as a warning. I don't know what they did. But what she did is she killed an entire city. She just decided to massacre innocent people, really. She just laid siege. So basically, this turned into a war because no one's going to sit there and be like, oh, yes, we deserve this. Please kill us all. So what she did is basically started a war. So her, her army was stronger. So she won, and she drove the survivors back into their cities. She then went to the city where her husband was killed again and laid siege. So I always think of laying siege as, like, for some reason I think of the Battle of Jerusalem where, or maybe, I don't know which, Jericho, it's Jericho, where they walked around the walls for seven days playing the instruments and the walls finally fell. That's what I think of when I hear of laying siege, you know? But I think the more correct comparison in this aspect would be, you know, talking about, like, Berlin or something in World War II because that was a siege, but that was that they drove them out. So, you know, in World War II, there were cities, especially in Russia, actually, that just weren't getting resources. So it's not that they were constantly being bombed. It's that they weren't receiving resources. People were dying off and they were just kind of cut off from the rest of the world. So that's what she did to this entire city. She laid siege for a year without success. So basically she did all this shit to these people and wasn't getting the results that she wanted to see. So she decided, I'm going to Trojan horse these bitches again. It worked the first time. Why wouldn't it work the second time? So she sends him a message and she says, why do you persist in holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted tribute so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace. But you had rather tide of hunger without submitting tribute. So what I didn't realize was that this is like the capital city. So she's basically gone through this entire country, city by city, and demanded tribute and, you know them being loyal, basically slaves to her. Um, but I guess the main the main city where her husband died was not just was just not putting up with this shit because you know they're the if they fall, everything else falls. There's no coming back from that. You if your capital city falls, you get conquered, hands down. So basically they said, okay, fine, we'll submit to tribute. But 
we're still a little afraid that you're a psycho bitch, you know? You've killed two groups of our ambassadors, um, killed 5,000 innocent people and then some, and we just don't believe you. We just don't, which I think is 100% fair. If somebody shows you the side of them where they've killed your brothers and sisters mercilessly time and time again, I also don't think I would trust them. Um, I can't say that I've ever been in that position, but you know, if it ever comes down to it, I now know not to trust that person. So she said, fine, I guess your fears are, you know, founded. So here's what we'll do. Give me three pigeons and three sparrows from each house. Now this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I guess maybe back in the 900s, birds were just super common and domesticated because I can't even tell you what a sparrow looks like you know I'm sure people are probably more educated than I am and I probably just don't bird watch as much as I should I can tell you what a pigeon looks like you know growing up outside of New York City pigeons were basically rats that carried you know germs and infestation throughout the city but sparrows I don't know what they would look like I know they're I know they're a bird which is the first step. But to get three pigeons and three sparrows from each house, I feel like birds were just way more plentiful back then because I can't get you shit right now. Plus, if I'm going to catch a bird, forget it. I can't even walk my dog without him running off. But basically, they were like, fine, we'll do it. They rejoiced at the prospect of the siege ending because apparently this was a small price. So I guess... I guess in fairness, she could have ordered money, right? She could have been like, I want $10,000 or whatever equivalent would be in the... She wants dreckles? Are they dreckles back then? She wants gold, basically. But she didn't say that, so they locked out. And they were like, fine, we'll get your fucking birds for you. So she told her army that once these birds are received... She wants them to attach a piece of sulfur bound with small pieces of cloth to each bird. So basically just put them around their feet. At nightfall, Olga then told her soldiers to take each of the birds with the sulfur and the cloth and to light them on fire and release the birds. So first of all, I don't know how well this would work because what they say is that the birds were released, went back to their nests, and set the city ablaze, and everyone, everyone died. So, it says, actually, that there was not a house that was not consumed, and it was impossible to extinguish the flames, because all houses caught fire at once. So, yeah, I can see that happening, but also there's the kind of the fact where if you tie a piece of cloth and string with sulfur to the bottom of a bird and set it on fire, wouldn't the bird die like how far away is her army to the city that they can light a bird's foot on fire basically let it go and the bird thinks hi yes this is normal i'm just going to go back to my nest like first of all i know that birds are pretty dumb in comparison to humans but i really don't think that they have zero common sense in order to return to their nests and just live life as a thing is nothing is happening you know, the only thing I can think of right now is that meme with the dog who's sitting in 
a house at a kitchen table with a top hat on, consumed by flames, and he just goes, this is fine, because that's exactly what I picture these birds doing. You know, they're they're on fucking fire, they're flying back to their nest, and they're like, meh, this is just how I live now, because why not? So basically, (laughs) all these houses caught fire, and then she goes even farther. So as people were leaving the city, she put her soldiers on each of the gates, caught everyone, like, filing out of the city, and just murdered them. So, just, like, women and children escaping the fire. These people, you know, thought they were, thought they were done, basically. They thought it was over. They thought they were free and clear. And she sets them on fire. And then, they think they're free and clear from the fire. They run outside, and they get murdered. So, really... What this reminds me of now is, spoiler alert, turn it off if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, but the fucking Game of Thrones, second to last episode, when Daenerys just lights the entire city on fire. Like, they surrendered. I feel like it's an unalienable right that if you surrender, you should, you should stay alive. I feel like that's kind of a rule, right? I mean, I know that they didn't have written rules back then. But I think that's probably rule number one. Because why surrender if it's not going to be honored? Then nobody would surrender then. Everyone would just die gloriful. Gloriful? Glory. They would die. They would die with glory, basically. It would be like a Japanese samurai falling on his sword. Why give up the easy way if you can just go out in a blaze of glory? But anyway, she defies the surrender. She kills them all, and I guess that quenches her her thirst for violence because there are no more there are no more accounts of her being violent and killing people and everything. They also say, you know, she went back to to rule, and I mean, she really didn't do much, honestly. She evaded proposals of marriage so she never married again which also goes back to the thing I said in the beginning with people marrying for true love so either she was incredibly faithful or you know she really loved this guy which I also find it hard to believe which I probably have just watched too many episodes of the Tudors but I also thought that when you marry for politics everybody just cheats on everybody else but maybe that's not the case maybe I just have a glass half full nope glass half empty cynical kind of a view on it um because maybe Igor was a great guy maybe Sviatoslav had great parents that he just never knew his dad but in retrospect she was crazy so honestly even if he did survive what would she have done if she did catch him cheating that's the ultimate question here what would she have done if Igor was still alive But basically, Olga moves on. She doesn't really do anything great. Um, Sviatoslav grows up. You know, he takes over the military. Basically, what what you would think. Um, She takes over the Drevlians, because obviously. And it really doesn't have... It doesn't have a lasting effect. I think what was so important about her rule was this giant murder spree in the beginning of it and then and then there's a you know a small little tidbit at the end 
which is really where things start to go crazy because when you hear about all those murders, she literally murdered innocent people over and over and over again. What she's known for is that she is a saint in the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. So this woman, the Catholic Church, looked at this woman's history. Sorry, my dog thinks he wants to be part of the podcast. But basically, the Catholic Church looked at this woman and her history and all these murders that she literally could fill up an entire city with all the people that she's murdered. And they said, this is someone to look up to, I think so. So they made her a saint. So here's here's the story of how she converted to Catholicism. So in the 950s, Olga traveled to Constantinople. And she visits with Constantine. Because of course she does. What I have problems with in, you know, history especially, is equating two time periods in different parts of the world together. So I'm making grand hand gestures at the moment, but my mind has difficulty equating Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire with Constantine at the same time as Crazy Olga is going on her murder spree, you know? I feel like when I hear these stories, these all happen at different times, and none of it happens concurrently. So I think that's something cool, you know, to know that she meets Ever Constantine, which... Yet, I just think it's super cool because I don't think about that in that kind of a term. So, to know that she did is just kind of cool. So, basically, she goes to meet Constantine. And Constantine is just enamored with her beauty. And at this point, it's it's 9.50. And they say that she was born probably between 8.90 and 9.25. So, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Actually, let's not, because if we're in 925, if she was born in 925, and we're in the 950s right now, that means she's about 25 years of age. And they say that her son, Sviatoslav, was out on military campaigns. I don't care how young you get married, your kid is not going to be on military campaigns by the time you're 25. I mean, even if you get married at the age of 13, let's say, your kid's going to be, what, 12 at that point? So I don't buy that. But if we go as early as they think in like 890, then she's fucking 60. And they talk about her beauty and how Constantine loved her. So I think we should probably go somewhere in the middle. So like if we say like 915, that probably makes more sense. You know, she her son is grown up. She's probably in her 30s. She's probably still beautiful. Even though 30s was basically an old ass woman at that time. But Constantine was enamored with her and he decided he wanted her as his wife. And she said, no, can't do it. I'm still a pagan. Don't you have rules against that? And he was like, oh, shit, you're right. I can't. So, you know, I can baptize you if you want. If you want to get married to me, I'll baptize you. We'll, we'll just take care of it. So Olga was like, eh, all right, we could do that. So she was like, nobody else can baptize me, though. It's got to be you gotta be the emperor he's gotta baptize me and then then maybe i'll entertain your proposal so he does he baptizes her (gasps) sorry i do really love that little fucker but sometimes he just needs to know when to shut his goddamn mouth so 
basically we're talking about Constantine baptizing Olga. So she does, and they say she gets baptized, and they say she was enlightened with the spirit of God, and she rejoiced in soul and body. And the patriarch who instructed her in her faith, because you can't just baptize someone, you gotta have to have a little bit of a knowledge of what you're doing in your your new religion that you just decided you wanted five minutes ago. Um, so he taught her the doctrine of the church, instructed her in prayer and fasting and almsgiving, and then the maintenance of chastity. So, I mean, I think that's a little redundant at this point, don't you? Like, she has a kid. I mean, I know that you can still be chaste, but I think it's a little late at that point. Especially when all these Catholic hypocrites go around, all these men, like King Henry VIII, for example, thought himself so fucking religious and so pious, and then he goes and sleeps with literally everyone he can get his hands on. But anyway, he taught her chastity. She bowed her head like a sponge absorbing water and eagerly drank in his teachings, which sounds a little dirty, but through thy prayers, holy father, she says, may I be preserved from the crafts and assaults of the devil. And at at baptism, she was christened Helena. So basically, I guess there's this thing that Catholics do. I mean, I'm Catholic, I should know this, that you take on a new name after baptism, but I thought that happened after confirmation, but I guess confirmation didn't really exist at that point. I don't know when exactly it came into being, but I guess not at that point. So she took on a new name. So Constantine's mom was Helena. So she decided, hey, I'm going to be your mom. So she becomes Helena and Constantine once again was, you know, I want to marry you. I think you're awesome. I think I want to marry you. And this bitch goes, how can you marry me after yourself baptizing me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful as you yourself must know. Okay. So basically she didn't have the heart to say no to the emperor of the Byzantines in the first place. So she tricked him into baptizing her, converting to an entirely new religion just so that she could outsmart him and say no to his marriage proposal. You know, I've made up a lot of excuses to not go out on dates with guys, but I don't know if I would ever convert religions. But, you know, it was the 950s, and the 950s, I guess, were a different time. Because, you know, he goes, you outwitted me. And he gave her gifts of gold, silver, silks, various vases, and dismissed her, still calling her his daughter. Which is fucking weird. But anyway, she goes back to Kiev, and she becomes super Christian, and everybody becomes Christian, and everybody's so happy. But, you know, this is, history is written by the victors. I always remember that quote. And at this time, the victors are the Christians. So, did she really convert everyone to Christianity? Did she really have a great role? Did she really follow all the teachings? Fuck if I know. Fuck if they know. Honestly, they probably didn't keep tabs on her because one little Russian princess isn't going to be huge in the scope of things that the Catholic Church is worrying about right now. They probably said, sure, you're going to go and 
evangelize. You're going to go turn everybody into a Christian, and we believe you. So that's what we're taking as fact. Um, basically, they really, what her big, what her big claim to fame here with Christianity was, is that she couldn't even convert her own son, Sviatoslav, but what she could do was get him to agree to not persecute any Christians, which the Catholic Church really took that as a major giant win. Because, I mean, okay, I kind of get where they're coming from. They were persecuted for, like, forever. But there are other religions that still to this day are being persecuted, and I just don't know if you can make somebody a saint for having her convince her son not to kill people. I mean, I mean, I guess it's her son, and, like, knowing her background, it's probably something that she got him not to kill them. But I, I just don't know. And after being raised Catholic, there are certain there are certain factors that you have to meet in order to become a saint. Because when I was little, I swore to God I was becoming a saint. And I actually got to see the Pope, like, swear in a saint. Can you do that? Like, a president be sworn in as a saint. But whatever. There's, there's certain aspects of being a saint. And one of those is that you have to be attributed to three different miracles. So somebody needs to pray to you asking for a miracle, and that miracle needs to be granted. So on on the back of that statement, who the hell was thinking of Olga in her murderous rage and thought, ah, yes, I need to pray to her. She'll help me. You know? Like, what kind of a fucked up person do you have to be to pray to this super fucked up person to get you what you want? You know, I feel like there are many other cool people that they could have prayed to. You know, like the Virgin Mary is a great opportunity. Um, Jesus himself also rocks. Um, But I just don't know if I would go with Olga. Anyway, after going through that whole story and figuring out that this woman is genuinely and honestly a saint in not only one, but two different religions. So, yes, I know that they came from each other. But in order to be a saint in both religions, you kind of have to be something pretty special. And I get why she could be a saint in, I mean, as much as I can get. I get that she can be a saint in the Eastern Orthodox religion because she's from Russia. And that's kind of where that religion originated, more in Greece, but in the European Western part, right? Um, nope, Eastern part. Wow, geography. It originated in the Eastern part, which is why it's called the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm a dumbass. But I just can't see why she would be a Catholic saint also. Like, what? I mean, I guess I guess what I want to know is what are her miracles? And I probably can look that up if I go into, like, the depths of the Catholic Church. And I probably will. That probably will be the next episode. Just because I'm so fucking curious. First of all, I want to know the kind of person who would pray to her. And I want to do an entire anthropological workup on that person. But I also want to know, like, what she did. Like, was her miracle, was her miracle to, like, kill your enemy? Because that I can see. I can understand that. But was her miracle to, like, cure your cancer? Because that's just something completely different. And I can't really see her looking down and be like, ah, yes, this one is worthy of saving. Because she killed 5,000, well, upwards of 5,000 people. And how can, whatever. I just 
don't understand it. But basically, soon after she was proposed to by the Byzantine emperor, she died in 969. And Sviatoslav decided he's going to move his throne to the Danube region. And Olga was like, no, if you leave, I'm going to die. And he was like, well, I'm fucking leaving. And she died. So, you know, there's that. At least, at least she was dramatic, but owned up to the drama. You know, there's one thing about being dramatic. Like, when her husband died, she probably was like, oh, I'll kill them all. And she did. She really did. And then, you know, she said, you know, if he moves the throne, I'm gonna die. And she did. So at least what she's known for can be that she follows up on her dramatics, which I do admire. Um... Because how many fucking girls go, ugh, I'm dead. Like, come on. Be dramatic with a cause here. But she's got a lot of churches. She's got a lot of monuments. And I just, all of these. Oh, actually, I was going to say all of these are in, like, Russia. But there's one in Chicago. There's one in Manitoba. There's two in Manitoba. There's one in Ontario. And there's one in South Australia. So, weird, man. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to definitely look up to what her miracles were, though, because I am curious, and I'll get back to that in the next episode. But I think that's a pretty fun story to leave with on the first episode because it genuinely is a badass historical story that you've probably never heard of before because I've never heard of it before. And I think it gets even more wild when you realize that she's a Catholic saint. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty badass in the beginning, like, but it gets more badass when this crazy-ass woman becomes a saint. And I don't want to say crazy-ass woman is in a, in a negative light, because she was fucking smart. If she was able to outsmart all those Drevlians, Constantine the Emperor, all this shit, she deserves it. She genuinely got everything that she deserves, and I'm borderline proud of her for that, because, like I said, she owns up to the dramatics, she doesn't beat around the bush, from what I can tell, and I may be glorifying Olga a little bit, which now I can see how the Catholic Church did it. But, I mean... She's pretty cool. And pretty cool first episode. So next time I will be diving into her miracles because I absolutely want to know. And I have genuinely no idea what the next story will be. So you'll just have to find out like I do. All right. Till the next time.